Well, you can tell a lot about someone by what's on his mind as death approaches. In fact, one author said that the prospect of imminent death uncovers our deepest concerns. The prospect of imminent death uncovers our deepest concerns. Death has a very powerful way of focusing us, doesn't it? In 2014, my father passed away. He died on a Wednesday. And that weekend before Wednesday, I was visiting with him in Buffalo. We all knew that his death was imminent. We all knew that. He knew that. My mother knew that. My sisters and I, we all knew. And so I was looking for an opportunity that weekend to have a one-on-one conversation with my dad. He and I had many conversations over the years about faith in Christ, and he was truly at peace in his soul. He, he knew Christ. He believed in Christ. He had a relationship with Jesus, and so he wasn't concerned, and I wasn't concerned about the state of his soul. But there were deep concerns that I did have and that I wanted to express. Two, mainly. I wanted him to know that I was deeply grateful And I wanted him to know that I loved him deeply. My father was a very, very hard worker. And I am very aware that who I am today, the opportunities that I have been given, what has been provided for, largely, if not mostly, have been provided. I am who I am largely because of the work and the sacrifice of my mother and my father. I was deeply grateful For all that he provided for me, I was a very well-provided-for individual, and I was grateful to him. I wanted my dad to know that I loved him. Sure, like any son and father, we had our ups and downs, and we had our moments just like everybody else does. But at the end of his life, none of those things really, truly mattered to me. I loved this man, and I knew that he loved me. When it was time to leave Buffalo and to come back to Pennsylvania, my mother and my father and I, we we gathered together in my parents' small little living room in western New York, and we prayed together, we cried together, and we communicated once again our deep love for one another. When death is at the doorstep, the words that we speak, they're very meaningful. And they're very intentional. The words that we speak uncover the deepest concerns of our hearts. In John 17, friends, we're invited, as it were, into the living room. We're invited into the space of intimate communication between Jesus, the Son of God, and his Father in heaven. We get to listen in. We're invited into this this space of deep concern being expressed from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. We get to hear what's on Jesus' mind. We get to feel what's on Jesus' heart. Remember, Jesus is praying this prayer just hours before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. That's where this prayer takes place. I just want to focus this morning on the first five verses. 
in these first five verses, there is a word that keeps being repeated over and over and over again. Look back at your Bibles. What is it? Glorify. Glorify. Glorified. Glorify. Glory. Five times. Jesus is saying the same word. So what is the deep concern that Jesus, the Son of God, has on his heart? What's the deep concern that's on the mind of Christ as he heads to his imminent death? The glory of God. Now there are so many things that we can mine out of this prayer. But at its very basic level, the Bible poses us a question at this point, especially to those who claim to follow Jesus as Lord. To Christians, this poses a specific question. And the question goes something like this. If Jesus had the deep concern for the glory of God in his life, do you have that deep concern? Do I have a deep concern for the glory of God? Now, before I can even begin to answer that question, I've got to first ask, what are we even talking about? What, what is the glory? I mean, it sounds really pious. It sounds like things that church people should talk about. The glory of God sounds really good. But what are we even talking about? What, what do we even mean by that? What is the glory of God? And, 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 and further, how do I take something that's so ethereal, so transcendent, so massive, the glory of God, and how do I practically apply that into my life so that on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm actually showing that I have this concern? How do I do that? That's what John 17 begins to unpack for us. I want to look at three descriptions of the glory of God that we see just in these five verses. Three descriptions of the glory of God. Number one, the glory of God is Christ-centered. The glory of God is Christ-centered. Glory is a theme that John has been talking to us about since the very first chapter of this book. In fact, it's a theme that goes much further back than John. In Exodus, the book of Exodus, Moses, who's the author there, talks about a conversation that he has with God. Do you remember this? Moses has led the people out of Israel, and they are found worshiping a golden calf. We all know the story. And God's judgment falls on the nation of Israel because they've done this. And Moses goes before God and pleads with God to forgive the people for this idolatry. God tells Moses, lead on, Moses. Take the rest of the people into Canaan. Lead on. And Moses says, Lord, please show me your glory. In other words, God, if you don't come with me, if you're not with this group of people, if you're not with the nation of Israel, I can't lead on. I've got to know that you're with me. God, please show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I will make all of my goodness 
pass before you. I will proclaim my name to you, but my face no one can see. So God hides Moses Moses in the cleft of a rock and allows Moses, just as God proclaims his name and passes before and the glory of God, the radiance and the splendor and the beauty of God pass before him, Moses is just allowed to see the passing entrails of God's glory. Why is this important? Well, when you turn to John chapter 1, this is the very scene that John has in his mind. Look with me at your Bibles. Turn quickly, just for a few moments, to John chapter 1. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He tabernacled among us. That's Exodus language. God's glory tabernacled with the people of Israel. They were called to create tabernacles or tents to live in the wilderness. This is Exodus language. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses, the law, that's Exodus language. That's where God gave the law to Moses. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No man can see my glory, Moses, and live. This is Exodus language. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him Known. So do you want to see the glory of God? John is saying the glory of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. We get to see it. We get to see the glory of God that Moses couldn't see. We get to see it in Jesus. But John continues. John chapter 12. Some Greeks are wanting to see Jesus. They want to see the glory of God. And Jesus says something very interesting. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Interesting. What is he talking about? Well, he goes right to his death, and we know that because he prays again there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. So somehow this hour is extremely important in the glory of God. Now John 17, the hour has come. And Jesus is praying the same thing. His deepest concern at the moment of his death is for the glory of God. And the glory of God is Christ-centered. It all focuses there, but it focuses on this hour When you hike a mountain, the goal, obviously, is to get to the top, right? The majority of my hiking has been in the Adirondacks. And in the Adirondacks, when you're hiking in the high peaks, every high peak, or just about every high peak, has a benchmark at the very top. Just a circular metal disc that's stamped with the elevation, the date, and bolted to the rock. So when you're hiking, you're always looking for the benchmark because when you stand on the benchmark, you know, I've reached the top. 
Do you want to know the benchmark of the glory of God? It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where you know. That is the apex. That is the height. That is the very top of the glory of God revealed to mankind. Now, do you know how ridiculous that sounded to a first century Jewish audience? Do you know how ridiculous it sounds today? Really? The glory of God? In a man? In a man naked? Profusely bleeding? Nailed to a tree? All of his friends rejected him? Suffering in agony as a convicted criminal? Really? The glory of God? And the resurrection? You actually believe that? Like you actually believe that a human being died and rose again three days later? The glory of God? Friends, it's no wonder that Jesus is praying because apart from the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I wouldn't see the cross and resurrection as glory. We would see it the way the majority of the world has always seen it. It's disgusting. It's despicable. It's foolishness. That's not glory. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The apex of the glory of God is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is glory. At the cross, the Father, in love and in honor to his Son. No one else can do this. You are my one-of-a-kind, unique Son. Nobody, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not entrusting this privilege to anybody but you, Jesus. I'm going to allow you to take the sin and the shame of the world onto yourself. I'm going to allow you to totally exhaust all of my holy wrath for sin that you never committed. I'm going to allow you to die and to be buried in a tomb. In three days, I'm going to raise you from the dead and exalt you at my right hand to show all the world that there's no one like you because I love you and I want to honor you. The Son in love and in honor to the Father willingly submits to this plan. Father, I love you so much. I want to honor you so much. I want to glorify the grace of God Almighty. I will do it. I am willing to do this because I love you and I want to honor you. So I will obediently suffer, die, and rise again to carry out the plan of the one I deeply love. God's glory is a Christ-centered glory. Now, we often don't think like this, do we? One of the problems why we don't think like this is because we're a lot like Michael Scott. Now, I know, I know I'm, on, I'm taking a risk here. I know that, and I'm doing it intentionally. I'm trying to make this point stick, friends. Michael Scott from The Office is painfully awkward and often inappropriate. I know that. One of the episodes, Pam from The Office is having her baby. 
and she's starting to have contractions. And Jim, her husband, is trying to calm her down and get her to go to the hospital. She doesn't want to go. She's afraid. And so Jim is like trying to coach her through like, we got to go, honey. We got we to go there. And he's got, Jim has his hand on Pam's hand on her lap. And Michael Scott is like leaning over, inserting himself into this moment, <laughs> trying to be helpful. So awkward. <laughs> You're watching the episode if you've seen it, and everything inside of you just wants to say, dude, it's not about you. You're not having this baby. You're not even the father of this baby. It's not about you. Friends, the fundamental human problem is this, one of them at least. We make everything about me. You make everything about you. And if we're not careful, we do this at the cross. He loved me and gave himself up for me. Yes, 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 Paul said that. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, 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 he did that. But that says much more about God than it does about you. Paul killed Christians. The world is not a big place. The world is a bad place. And so that God would love it says much more about God than it does about you and me. You see, if we're going to adopt this deep concern of Christ for the glory of God, we've got to first recognize this. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It used to be, right? It used to all be about me, about my pleasure, about my cravings being satisfied, about my hopes and dreams being executed in this life, about all that I wanted out of life. It used to be all about me. Not anymore. If you're a Christian, that is over. You have died to that. Life is not about you. Life is about the glory of God, and the glory of God is Christ-centered. I feel challenged by this, church. I feel really challenged. The men and I yesterday were looking at Colossians. I feel challenged by this. The glory of God. Paul, the apostle Paul, was a man enamored by the glory of God. And I feel like there's such a gap between me and Paul. And Paul, the reason why he's primarily consumed with the glory of God is because Jesus Christ himself is consumed. This is the deepest concern on his heart. This is where he starts this whole prayer. God, glorify yourself. I want the glory of God to be seen in this moment. Do you have even an inkling of that desire? I feel challenged by this. I feel challenged when I see the Greenslades who live in a hospital room for months as their son Aaron suffers and doctors and nurses and, and everybody is trying to help him get better. And requests would come like this. Guys, this is really hard and Aaron's really suffering and we're having a really difficult time right now, but there's a lot of eyes on us right now. Would you pray that God would be glorified? 
That's the prayer that they gave to us to pray. Would you pray? All these eyes, doctors, nurses, friends, families, they're all on us right now. Would you pray that God would be glorified? I feel challenged by that. Right here, last week, I'm talking with my friend Brandon. Brandon and his wife Anya have taken in their family from Ukraine. You know this. Brandon, how can I pray for you? I just want God to look good right now. That's what I want. I truly, I'm doing this, and it's a lot of work, and I love my family, but at the end of it all, I just want God to look good. I want God's glory in this. I feel challenged by that. Tom Struby and his wife Jackie, they just had their brand new baby. They were just up here. Tom is battling cancer. He sends text requests. Would you pray that I'd have an opportunity to share Jesus with these people? I feel challenged. It's another way of saying I want the glory of God that's focused on Jesus Christ. I want an opportunity to share that, even amidst this trial. I want to be more like that, church. I want to be more like that. Do you want to be more like that? What circumstance, what situation do you find yourselves in right now? Normally when I find myself, whether good or bad, in any situation, a lot of my prayers are me, 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 I, I, I. What if we actually started praying, God, I don't know how you're going to do it or when, but would you glorify yourself in this situation? Would you take this situation somehow, I don't know how you're going to do it, but would you glorify Christ? Would you help me to have this concern in this moment with the glory of God in Jesus Christ? May it be seen somehow in my life right now. Glorify your name in me today. This is how the glory of God is first described. It's a Christ-centered glory. The glory of God is Christ-centered. Secondly, the glory of God is relational. The glory of God is relational. Something celebrated and enjoyed together. Throughout John's gospel, and here again in John 17, we see the Father and the Son presented to us in this loving relationship. Now, we all love loving relationships, right? That's why our hearts are all warm and fuzzy when we hear about the couple. They've been married for like 80 years, and they say things like, we're still in love. We don't even talk to each other. We just sit in the same room because we love being in each other's presence, like for real, right? We just know each other so deeply, and we've been through so much, and we just truly enjoy being in one another's company. And so we don't even have to talk. We can just sit and be content. We, we love each other. This relationship we have is special. We love stories like that. And one of the reasons why is because they're so unique. Friends, nothing is as unique as the relationship between the son and the father. Nothing. A mutual celebration and delight between the Father and the Son. A mutual adoration and exaltation. A mutual honoring. They would never even think of doing anything that would upset each other. Like the Father and the Son, they've never had to stay up late trying to figure out an argument. Jesus has never tapped God on the shoulder and said, Hey, can, can we revisit that? Some of you said back there, bang me up, and I need to talk to you about that. There's never been hours 
or days or weeks of coolness between the Father and the Son. Never. They are in complete unity. They share an identity such that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard my words, you've heard the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. They're completely one. They're a shared identity, distinct in person, but shared identity. And their glory is manifested in this relational warmth, this unbroken trust, a total consecration to one another, a complete fidelity, and a total openness, like a total transparency. I mean, how unique is this? Even the best relationships that we enjoy in this life, our best relationships pale in comparison to the relational intimacy that the Father and the Son enjoy. Pale in comparison. I dare say that none of us wants complete transparency. Even in our close relationships, am I willing? Are you willing? in your closest relationships, to have everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, just laid out there for everybody, even the closest to you, to see. We cringe at that stuff. You would not want that popping up on the screen behind me. Friends, this very intimacy and joy between father and son, it's the very intimacy that was lost at the fall. Adam and Eve were told in Genesis they lived naked and unashamed. Those are not primarily sexual terms. It tells us of total transparency. Nothing is hidden. Nothing. It's all exposed before God and before one another. We're completely transparent with one another. And they walked with God and with one another in this way. Until sin entered the world. Then what do they do? They hid. I want God seeing me now. I'm covering myself now. Now I know of nakedness. I don't want total intimacy anymore. And neither have any of us ever since. Now there's another thing that we see in Genesis. And it's the first hint of the gospel. God takes initiative to deal with this Shame, to deal with the nakedness, to deal with the guilt that's causing them to try to cover up. That's why they're doing it. They feel shame and they feel guilt. And so they're trying to cover that up. God is the one in Genesis 3 to take initiative to that. He provides animal coverings. He provides skins for them to wear. In other words, the guilt and the shame is taken care of, but someone's got to die for that. We come back to John 17. The hour has come. Jesus is about to give up his life to cover our shame, to cover our guilt, to die, to provide covering. He takes our sin. He gives us robes of righteousness. He covers us with his very own perfection. What's the reason? Look at verse 3. He does this to give eternal life. And what's eternal life? That they might know 
You, Father, and Jesus, the one that you've sent. What's he saying here? He's saying that the very transparency, the very relationship that was destroyed when sin entered the world, the very opportunity that we have to enter into the glory of God, this relational warmth, this total transparency, this mutual love that's been lost at the fall, Jesus is saying, I've come to give that back to you. I've come to welcome you into the very intimacy that I enjoy with the Father. I've come to cover you, to bring you into that. I want you to be a part of this. I want you to share in my glory, my glory that's a relational glory. I want to be friends. I want you to know the Father, and I want you to know the Son, and I want you to know the Spirit in the same intimacy that we've always enjoyed. Welcome in, friends. And we show that we know very little of the glory of God when we talk about heaven sometimes, and I'm guilty just like the next person is. We wonder if we're going to see our pets. We talk about seeing loved ones that we lost. We talk about enjoying good foods and times of fellowship together and, and whatever without getting hurt. But what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. What makes heaven heaven is that you and I get to see, if we're in Christ, we get to see the beauty and the radiance and the majesty, the glory of God. We get to gaze at it forever and be enjoyed by entering into it in a relationship with him. That's what makes heaven, heaven. D.A. Carson said eternal life is not so much about having everlasting life, not so much about having everlasting life, but knowing the everlasting one. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Friends, this is why human existence, so much of human existence is so meaningless when it's lived apart from God. Genesis tells us this is the very relationship you and I were created for. When life is lived apart from a relationship with God through Christ, you can enjoy lots of things in life, but ultimately it's all meaningless because the very reason that you live is to be a part of this relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you're not involved in that relationship, you might enjoy a lot of things, but you don't enjoy the very purpose for which you exist. There's a reason why great thinkers for centuries have said things like Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We can all relate to this restlessness. We can all relate to it. We run to alcohol. We run to Netflix. We run to, I'll work harder. I'll get the next promotion. I'll get the bigger house. I'll eat more food. I'll go shopping. But it never quite does it for us, does it? Never. What if the pressures of our life, the pressures of school, of work, of church, of home, what if those very pressures were meant to push us into a deeper relationship with God? 
Have you ever knew, used an, an, air, an air nailer? Little porter cable, like, you can hear it filling up. Okay, some guys and some ladies are shaking their head. You know what I'm talking about, an air nailer. Like, now, have you ever noticed when that pressure dies down, what happens? You go to fire the trigger and the nail goes out or the staple goes out and it's like an inch out of the wood or whatever you're trying to staple or nail. And the pressure tank fills up again. If that pressure tank is filled in, you pull the trigger and boom, that nail sinks all the way down. That very pressure is driving that nail into the wood. Friends, Jesus is weighed down with the pressure of the cross that's just looming over him hours away. And that pressure is driving him deeper and deeper and deeper into this relationship with God. That's where the glory of God is enjoyed. He's not running to Netflix. He's not running to alcohol. He's not running to shopping. He's not running to eating. Why? Because those things can't bear the weight of glory. That's why they never satisfy us. So what if those very pressures that you're experiencing in your life right now, what if you allow it like that nail gun to just drive you into a deeper relationship with God? That's who you've been created for. That's who you have been created to enjoy in a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit. Not to run away from him in, pro, in trial. Not to run away in pressure. Not to run away to other things for escape. But to run and enjoy him. To know him. This, Jesus says, is eternal life. This is the very life that Jesus paved the way for you and I to enjoy. Through his death. And through his resurrection, he offers us the opportunity to live for the glory of God. To live in this relational intimacy with the Godhead. And to live cultivating a relationship where we find true peace. True joy. Our hearts finally find their rest in him. The glory of God is Christ-centered. The glory of God is relational. Finally, the glory of God is both temporal and eternal. It happens in space and time, and it's outside of time. Look back at verse 4 and 5. Jesus says that he has glorified God on earth. So there's a temporal aspect to God's glory. It's in the here and now. But he prays that the Father would glorify him in his presence in heaven with this glory that's existed before the world even was. The glory of God is both temporal in space and time, the unearthness of God's glory, and it's an eternal glory that exists forever and ever. No beginning, no end. In Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth as a human, though, we're told that he emptied himself. In other words, he didn't empty himself of being God. That's heresy. It wasn't as if Jesus kind of was playing in the minor leagues of God's glory, came to earth, did everything he did, died, rose again. Now he's in the majors. That's heresy. Jesus has always been the perfect, 
holy son of God, always. He never increases in glory. What's communicated to us in this incarnation and Jesus coming to earth is not the matter that he is God and is glorified. It's more of the way or the means that that glory is made known to us. In other words, the way that Jesus glorified God was extraordinarily by living obedient to the Father in every way. He emptied himself of the glory such that if you saw him passing by, you wouldn't have been like, whoa, who's that? He was unnoticed, by and large, by everybody who knew him, rejected by most. The glory of God in Christ was veiled visibly, but it was seen demonstrably through what he did. He obeyed the Father in everything. It was a glory that was revealed in space and in time. In heaven, that's not going to be the case. Nobody's in heaven right now saying, who, who's that guy? Who who is that? Nobody. Everybody knows who he is. And God says that one day when he's died, he's risen again, he's exalted him to the Father's right hand so that every tongue would confess, every knee shall bow. Where? In earth, under the earth, and in heaven. That means everybody. Everyone will confess the glory of God, the the Son of God, that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God. Nobody's wondering, and you, if you're sitting here today, you at one point will not wonder who that is. You will see him, and you will see the glory of God, and you'll know right away who you're looking at. The crucified one who lived for you, died for you, and rose to be exalted at the right hand of God to receive worship and honor and power and wisdom and glory forever. No one's questioning that. The cross is the very vehicle, it's the very means through which the Son of God, who was God on earth, he, he goes back to this restored glory in heaven through means of the cross and the resurrection. That's why he's praying for this glory. He knows that that's the very vehicle that the Father's going to use to bring him back to glory. But think of how limited Jesus was. He was limited in geography. He was confined to first century Palestine. He was limited in life experience. He was never married. He never parented children. He never even experienced middle age. He was limited in his life experience. He was limited in his ministry. So in other words, there were people that Jesus didn't heal. There were people that Jesus didn't preach to. There were people that Jesus did not visit. Yet he glorified God in space and in time, he says, by accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Now certainly Jesus is unique in that because that work included the cross. You and I don't do that. But in a similar way, what Jesus does to all of us disciples is he invites us into this way of living life in space and time, here and now on earth. What work has God given you to do? What work has God entrusted to you? Yeah. 
In many ways, the Bible boils down living for the glory of God in very simple terms. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Employees, do you want to live for the glory of God? Respect your boss. Employers, be fair and kind to those who work for you. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. That's how the Bible boils down living for the glory of God. Living for this temporal, in space, and in time glory. You see, it's not so much what we do, but it's why we do what we do. What we do is a means to a greater end. Our life is not primarily about our callings. Our life is prim- not primarily about our roles. It's not primarily about what we do. What makes those things special is that those roles and those callings are where we live out our lives to the glory of God. Our lives in this short time, friends, are about Christ. And we will share in his glory both now and forever because in heaven, the people who are praising God realize in space and time, he did all of those things so that I can enjoy this. So I begin here and now living for your glory, but I'm heading to a place where I'm going to celebrate your glory forever. It's both temporal and it's eternal. We only have one life to live. And when we live it for Christ, it's a life worth living. But if we don't live it for Christ, you're wasting your life. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, I am so glad that you're here. I really am. This is a heavy message to come to the first time to. But it's not by accident that you're sitting in the seat. I don't know what you think about the glory of God. I truly don't. I don't know what your religious background is. I don't know what your faith is in. I don't. What I've tried to do today is to show you from God's word that the glory of God is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you would personally say, I'm, I, I want to know more of that. I, I want to learn what that means. I, I want to believe that for myself, like for me personally, not these people, but for me. I would love to talk more with you about that. But this is the life that's truly meaningful, to live for the glory of God, because that's, that's God's A plan. He doesn't have a plan B. The glory of God is what this world is all about. He's the fixed center of all that is. In closing, the book of Hebrews talks about this joy being set before the Lord. For the joy set before him, it says, he endured the cross. Well, now we know a little bit more about that joy. For the joy of being exalted and exalting the Father. For the joy of obeying the Father's will and experiencing the Father's love. For the joy of welcoming others into this relationship with God. For the joy of helping countless men and women live their lives now and forever for the glory of God. This is the joy that Christ had set before him that helped him to endure the misery of the cross. So friends, the Bible doesn't say fix your eyes on Netflix. 
It does not say fix your eyes on yourselves. It doesn't say fix your eyes on all your problems. It says fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And by fixing our eyes on him, we will endure to the glory of God. Amen.